to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Father, we come before you and we just pray, Lord, that as we uh, come and we look at your word and read your word and discuss your word, Lord, that uh, you would have the Holy Spirit come into our hearts to open our eyes to see the truth. Your um, word declares that uh, the truth will lead us into, the, the, the Spirit will lead us into all truth. And Lord, that you would open our eyes that we can see the wondrous things that are in your law. And that, Lord, that we would be transformed and we would be changed by what we see. We pray, Father, that you would grow us evermore into your people, a people who have a heart for you and who are willing and able to go out into the world and do the work that we've called to do, which is to share the hope and the healing of Christ Jesus with our community and with the rest of the world. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your mobile device, please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. We're going to actually be in chapters 3 and 4 this morning. And I want to welcome you back to part 7 of this series um, that we titled Pillar of Truth. And uh, I'll have to admit, um, normally um, with most sermon series, I try to wrap things up within about four to six weeks. Um, Six weeks or a month and a half is actually a really good duration to look at a subject or to examine the book of a Bible because it's usually enough time to flesh out all the main ideas and then talk them through and break them down into applications so we can apply them to our lives. Um, and, and because, you know, we have so many things to talk about, you know, um, you know, having series that are run about four to six weeks, it's optimum for us because it gives us a chance to work through about eight to 10 subjects or books of the Bible in a given year because, the reality is we have a lot to talk about. Culture's changing all the time. Our, you know, there's so much we need to know, and so there's a lot to talk about. So we try to go six to eight weeks. But for this uh, particular series, um, as much as I didn't want to, um, you know, as much as I want to wrap this up in six weeks, we're actually going to go to a seventh week. Okay, we're gonna, actually before we close this series out, we're going to do a seventh part in this series. And and which, by the way, just if you know me, it kind of offends my OCD nature because I always want to end on an even number. It just seems really weird to end a series on a three or a five or a seven. So anyway, um, but uh, so I know I'm weird, but but that's okay. All right, but today we're going to wrap up this series in the Pillar of Truth with a seventh part, and and we're gonna we're gonna do so by talking about perhaps one of the most important and relevant texts in the entire Bible, especially for our particular time in history, because I believe that this text that we're going to look at today, once you hear it and we read through it, you're going to think to yourself, man, that sounds just like things are today. I think it's really relevant for our time and our culture. Now, uh, before we jump in the text, let me just review real quick where we have been in this series, because context is important. We opened up this series by talking about the fact that, that near the end of, of his ministry um, and near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul wrote three letters to, to two young pastors, Timothy and Titus, and he wrote these letters to help them to deal with issues in the church. And many of the issues that they were dealing with are issues the church faces today. And his first letter to Timothy... Paul paints this word picture of how the church is God's instrument that he is using to hold up the truth for all the world to see. In fact, Paul calls the church the pillar of truth, okay? And we borrowed this imagery for this series, okay? As we said before, the church is founded on the word of God, all right? And it's the structural support that stands firm, resisting the gravitational pull of the world around us and the influences of the world. And the church holds up for the world to see real objective truth. The truth about God, the truth about creation, the truth about mankind, the truth about sin, the truth about the gospel. The church is God's pillar of truth here on the earth. And like I've said before, you know, we've been looking through three letters by the Apostle Paul that he wrote to Timothy and Titus to deal with the issues that the church faced in the first century as it was struggling to be this pillar of the truth. And, and, and many of these issues are relevant for our church today, like the issues of doctrine. Doctrine um, is one of the... the it, 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 is one of the most important issues in the church. Doctrine is at the core what it means to be a pillar of truth because it is through doctrine that we actually teach the truths about the Christian faith. It's the doctrine that, that, we, that allows us to pass our faith down from generation to generation. In fact, we said true doctrine leads to life and false doctrine leads to death. And the church has always had to contend 
with issues of doctrine and false doctrine. That's why every member of the church needs to learn and to defend sound biblical doctrine. And then in week two, we talked about how um, that doctrine is actually, if it's true, and if it's believed and applied to someone's life, that doctrine will result in a change in that life, that your life will change and my life will change because of sound doctrine, that, that, that the change in us will lead us to right action because, because as we said, sound doctrine leads to right action. If you believe it and you know it and you trust in it, then it will change you. Then in week three, we explored how this right action isn't simply just a right action. It actually is in stark contrast with the rest of the world. If, if we indeed believe the truth, that truth will change us and lead us to live a life that is completely different than the rest of the world. And, and the way that we live then should be in stark contrast is light in the darkness. And, and Christ's followers then really need to be the most loving the most patient, the most kind and generous and obedient and selfless people in the world. Our actions should stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world. It should cause us to stand up as a beacon of hope in a world of darkness. And then in week four, we talked about the idea that connects these three things together, which is godliness. Godliness is, is simply a heart that's centered on God that leads to a life that's centered on God. Godliness comes actually out of doctrine and it's expressed in right action that leads a believer to a godly life that is in fact far and away different than the rest of the world. And then week five, we talked about the importance of, of the fruit of, of godliness that comes from that. And, and one of the ones we talked about was self-control. Self-control is the, the gift that God gives us as he begins to sanctify us. It's the appropriate response on our part to the work that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us. You see, God justified us through the blood of Christ and we respond to that through faith and repentance. And then we are sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit within us and we respond to that work with self-control. Self-control helps us to grow as we learn to fight sin and temptation. Self-control helps us to become obedient to the word of God. Self-control helps us to become stronger and more stable parts of the church. And then last week we talked about one of the most important practical things that we can do in our lives uh, as members of the church, and, and that is to flee. Okay, if we're going to be pillars of the truth and we believe and, and guard and teach sound doctrine, if we're going to live in right action that's con in contrast to the rest of the world, if we're going to be people who are walking in godliness and self-control, then we need to learn to flee from sin and temptation. We need to learn to flee from sexual immorality and materialism and idolatry and, and youthful lusts. You see... I think most of us have this tendency to overestimate our own abilities. I think most of us have this tendency to think that we're a little bit in control. And so we don't see a problem with dabbling in those kinds of things. And we don't see a problem with flirting in those kinds of things and, and exposing ourselves to those kinds of things. But we didn't understand that this temptation, temptation always brings with it sin. And sin always brings sin, uh, death and destruction. Okay, we need to know that and understand that and hold on to that. So we, we can't dabble in or flirt with sin. We can't think that we're strong enough to resist it on our own. We need to do what Paul says is to flee from it. We need to escape from it. We need to find the safety and the refuge of God. And, and if we're going to stand firm for our families, if we're going to stand firm for our church, we're going to stand firm for our community, uh, then we need to master the skill of fleeing from sin and temptation. Uh, because as we wrapped up last week, the purpose, as we discussed, of all of these things, everything that we've been talking about, the purpose of even our own salvation is, as Paul says, that God may perhaps grant them other people uh, repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their sense, senses and escape from the snare of the devil and after being captured by him to do his will. You see, the purpose of all this is to help other people to see the truth and to be saved. The purpose of sound doctrine, the purpose of living right action, the purpose of standing out in the world, the purpose of your godliness, the purpose of your self-control, the purpose of you fleeing from your sin, the, the purpose of the, the church being the pillar of truth, second only to the glory of God. The purpose of all of this is so that people can see the light of Christ in the world, come to their senses and actually hear the truth and then repent from their sin and be saved. That is the purpose. Now, 
with all of that, uh, there's one last text that, that we're going to look at this morning um, that speaks to that purpose, but it also demonstrates how the world really is. And it describes for us how we at First Baptist Church as a congregation and as individuals are to respond to this world. Because in this text, there's a profound truth about really uh, the world and the people in it, including, I might say, including many people in the church. There is a text that, that we need to look at and that we need to know and absolutely take seriously. Because, because remember, we live in a world right now that does not embrace an objective truth. We live in a world that embraced a truth that's based on postmodern thought that says all truth is relative. Which means that truth is based on my own life, my own situation, my own culture. Truth is based on my own experiences. It's based on my own desires. What's true for you isn't necessarily true for me because truth isn't universal or objective. There is no objective standard of truth is what the world believes. And we are going to see shadows of this and the results of that kind of thinking in this text. And we're going to see how the church is to respond to that. So turn with me to 2 Timothy. Um, we're going to begin in chapter 3, but our main text we're going to get to is in chapter 4. But um, before we actually jump into the passage, let's just kind of review the context of this. It's always, always, always important to look at the context of a scripture. And so the context of this letter is that Paul is right now in prison. He is soon to be executed. He's already been condemned to death. This is his second time in prison. He will be executed. Uh, and it's actually been, um, the tradition is that he actually died uh, by being fed to the lions. Um, and, and so this is his last letter that he wrote to the New T in the New Testament. And, and he writes this letter to encourage Timothy because Timothy is living in a world that is hostile to the Christian message. He's living in a world that stands against the, the, the message of Christ. In fact, people are, are being persecuted for their faith. And many in the church are being, being, uh, beginning to compromise the doctrines of the church in favor of teachings that are more palatable to the surrounding culture. There are people who are willing to change the truth about the gospel and the nature of Christ in order to fit into the world better. And Paul writes Timothy uh, to encourage him to stand firm during this difficult time. And, and he encourages him to stand firm on the issue of sound doctrine and not to allow those in the world to sway him and not, and, and not allow them to, uh, to, to change his mind with respect to the truth. And Paul says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. You think times are hard now, Timothy? <laughs> it's just going to get worse. All right, a time's coming when things are really going to get difficult for you and the church. And the reason is, in verse 2 he says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, loving, I mean not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power avoid, he says, such people. See, Paul tells Timothy that things are going to continue to get hard because people will have their own agenda. They're, they're just going to want to do their, have it their own way. They're going to want to be focused on themselves and they're going to want to have, have it all about what they want. They're going to be lovers of self. They're going to be lovers of money, proud, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, without self-control. Man, if that doesn't give us a, an apt description of the way things are today... In, in our culture, doesn't it resonate? I mean, it resonates with me. And I think it resonates with us because, because that's the way people are, okay? And, and we see it. But here's the thing we have to understand. This is the way people have always been, okay? People have always been this way. It's just that there are times in history and in culture where things, this is more evident and more extreme than at other times. And we live in a culture right now where these things are very, very pronounced, we live in a culture that is very self-absorbed. We see it every day on the news. People have no desire for the truth. They just want to push their own agenda. They want to have it their own way. It's all about me. It's all about my life. It's all about my own situation. Who cares about the truth? It's about me and what I want and the life that I want to live. It's about my own personal opinions. Again, all based on postmodern thought. And then notice what Paul says. He says, and they will even have an appearance of godliness. They will even appear to have a mind centered on God. And many of these people will claim to love God. They will claim to represent God. 
But they will deny the power because it won't translate into a changed life for God. And as a result, it will be, you know, it'll just be a furtherance of their agenda. It'll be, you know, basically glorification of self. That is all that that kind of godliness will bring. And then Paul says that, that these things are going to continue and get harder because people are running from the truth, pursuing their own selfish ends. And then, it, then, then he tells Timothy in verses 6 through 9 that these kinds of people are going to influence and lead people astray. He said they're going to appeal to people because of their struggle with sin and their struggle with their passions, which is why we need to learn to flee from those things. But Paul says that, that people are going to be led astray because others will appeal to their sins and their passions, making them feel like their sin and their passions are okay. I mean, isn't it interesting that, that, that we now live in an age when, when in the church there are people who are willing to walk away from the biblical understanding of sin, of, 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 of hell, and embrace the idea that God is just okay with me not repenting of my sin. That God is fine with me not changing. That in, or, that, that in the church, there, there's this whole redefinition of what it means to have faith. And this redefinition is founded on the idea that my desires and my passions and my lusts don't have to be submitted to the word of God. Because the Bible really doesn't define for us those things, especially in our modern context, is what we hear. In fact, many say that God made me this way. He made me you know, with a lustful heart. He made me to be homosexual. He made me the person I am. He made me to be the person that says, I can't stay married in this situation. God made me this way and he accepts me this way. So I don't have to change. That's the modern spin on faith. I can believe in Jesus and not have to repent and still live disobedient to his revealed truth found in the Bible and still be saved. My friends, this is our postmodern culture with its relativistic truth leading the world, including many who believe that they are in the church astray. People are being led away by their sin and by their passions. And then in verse 10, he continues and says, you, however, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Paul says, you have been a witness to my life, Timothy. You have seen how I've been faithfully following God and how, I've, how even I've done that even when I'm being persecuted and how I've not wavered in my faith and how you have seen how God has delivered me because I've been faithful in persecution and not to compromise the truth even when things are hard. And then he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, this right here, this is really important for us to come to terms with. You see, in our culture and in our world, there's a rising trend, a trend that's outside of the church, but it's also now becoming more, more pronounced inside the church. And the trend is that if you hold firm to the idea that the Bible is infallible, that if you hold firm to the infallible nature of Scripture and you believe long-held doctrines, long-held doctrines from the beginning of the church on things like, Salvation by grace and sin and hell and judgment and repentance and the exclusive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are immediately labeled as a bigot, homophobic, Islamophobic, unintelligent, unenlightened. You're a religious extremist. In fact, if you're a Christian, you're basically the equivalent of an Islamic religious extremist on par with Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Right? You're nothing but a misguided, hateful buffoon falling into the trap of religious fundamentalism. And, and as such, you should be censored by the government and the government should take control of you. That is the trend. And the government's already doing that. I mean, the government is already allowing Christians to be sued for their expressions of their faith. The government's already working actively right now to force churches and faith-based organizations to allow people who do not subscribe to traditional views of faith. The government's trying to force for them to be hired as not just staff members, but as leadership. The government is working right now to force churches to accommodate people who are struggling with gender identity. 
California right now is struggling and trying to push and force Christian schools and Christian colleges in California, trying to push them and force them to abide by California's uh, admission standards for transgender and, and make accommodations for those people, regardless of what their faith is. My friends, Paul's words that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted are absolutely true. We face persecution in this generation and it will get worse. As our culture continually grows to become a secular society, it will get worse. And it won't be just at the hands of the government. It won't be just at the hands of, of the academy or the university. It's not going to be just the educational system. It will be the hands of many people in the church who claim to follow Christ, who have been led astray. Paul continues in verse 14 and says, But as for you, continue in what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And then he gets to the point here. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, Paul tells Timothy, things are going to get hard. People are going to do what they want to do. People are going to persecute you. People are going to want to do what they think is right. People are going to follow their own truth. People are going to follow their own desires. People are going to put their passions and their lusts before God. Paul says that the world is going to turn against you. And the world is going to, to try to deny, you know, the real objective truth. But Paul is, encourages Timothy to stand firm and remember, remember the scriptures because they are in fact the very word of God. Paul says that scriptures are theonoustos, okay, which means literally God breathe. All scripture is the very breath, the very word of God. And as such, because it is God's word, it is useful for teaching sound doctrine. It's useful for pointing out errors in false doctrine. It's useful for correcting false teachers so that someone may, may come back to true doctrine. It's useful for training a believer in righteousness that a believer can actually go to the word of God and learn how to walk right before God and how to live a life of obedience that is pleasing to God. And then he says that the word of God makes the believer complete, whole, ready to do the work that God has called him to do. It has the power power to help the believer to be ready to fill the purpose that God has for him, which is to be the pillar and beacon of truth in this dark world so other people can see the truth and come to their senses and repent and be saved. And then Paul takes all of this and he makes it extremely practical and says in verse, uh, chapter four, verse one, he says, I charge you in the presence of God of and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You see, in this text, we see both the commission of the church, which is to preach the word of God, and the condition of those in this dark world. People having itching ears that want not to be told the truth, but what will satisfy their desires and, 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 and validate the way they want to live. And, and sadly today, there are many people today inside the church who firmly believe themselves to be Christ followers who, ex, who are actually in this camp. People who call upon the name of, of Christ but only want to hear pleasing things. They only want to hear the things that make them feel better about themselves. They only want to hear the things th th that God say that, you know, I'm okay with your sin. Because, because they have no taste for the truth. And so they will find and they will collect for themselves those people who will validate their perspective. They will find people that will tell them what they want to hear. And there are so many people who, who only will listen to preachers who say God wants them to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Okay? They will listen to people who will say things, well, when we worship God, you're not doing it for God. You're doing it for you. Right? You're doing it for you. And, and, and when you do it for you, that makes God happy because God's happy when, when, when you're happy. 
God's glorified when you're happy. People flock by the tens of thousands to hear this kind of preaching. There are people who want to hear, you know, you're a child of the king, right? And because you're a child of the king, God wants you to live like royalty, which means it's okay for you to pursue money and riches and material possessions. In fact, you know, your material status and your wealth actually is a reflection of how much faith you have in God. People want to hear that kind of stuff. People want to hear things like, you know, religion tries to make you feel guilty, but God doesn't want you to feel guilty about your sin. You see, God just wants you to know how loving he is and how he, how he accepts you, right? He doesn't want you to feel guilty about your sin. Jesus died so you don't have to feel guilty. That's what people want to hear. People want to hear things like, you know, the Bible doesn't really address monogamous homosexual relationships the way that, that we understand them in our culture because, because our culture is different, Okay? And really, God, he really only cares about people loving each other anyway. God cares about commitment. God cares about fidelity between two people, regardless of their gender. That's what people want to hear. People want to hear that God is a loving God, and a loving God wouldn't possibly even create a place like hell, much less send somebody there. People want to hear that, that, that all you have to do is pray this little prayer, you know, and all you do, that, and then you're saved no matter what happens in your life, no matter what you do, and no matter how you don't change because you're saved by a little prayer. In fact, there's a pastor named Paul Washer, and he says he wants to declare war on the sinner's prayer because he believes that the sinner's prayer gives people a false sense of security. Now, I don't actually share his, his extreme view of declaring war you know, on the sinner's prayer. I think, I think it's useful, but I do understand where he's coming from because the church is filled with people that are false converts to the faith. People, uh, they think that because they simply just you know, have this little prayer, you know, they say some little prayer you know, apart from any understanding of sin or repenting of sin or actually moving to a saving faith in Christ that somehow, some way that they're, they're saved. Okay, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing that leads to a false sense of security. Okay, but Paul, the apostle, is right. People don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear what they want to hear. They want to hear the things that make them feel good, things that scratch their ears. In fact, if you think about that expression, it's really apropos because... I don't know about you, but like when the inside of your ear itches and you take that Q-tip in there, isn't it like, oh, right? It's like instant relief. That's what people want. People don't want conviction. They want relief from the conviction, all right? They will listen and follow to all those who claim to preach the word of God, but instead of preaching the word of God, they preach false doctrines. And let me tell you, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of preachers out there who do just that. But remember, true doctrine leads to life. False doctrine leads to death. That's why Paul tells Timothy, you need to combat this. That's why he says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and that by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, I just want you to notice a couple of things here. I want you to notice the language here. He says, I charge you, okay? This, this is an important word out of the Greek, okay? Because the word charge is the equivalent of a military command, okay? It is a direct order. This is not negotiable. This is not a suggestion. It is a military command. This is a must do. He's telling Timothy that there is something he absolutely, without question, without reservation, he must do. This is not optional, and notice what else he says. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. Okay, he's, he's saying, I'm giving you this order in front of the master. I'm telling you what you must do before God as a witness. God, who, by the way, gave me the authority to give this commission to you, is my witness. And I'm telling you, you must preach the word. And so he, he says that I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who, I want you to notice this, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Now, there's two things that we really need to pay attention here. There are two fundamental realities that we need to come to terms with in this text. If you're a Christ follower, there are two things that you absolutely must understand. Number one, Paul says Christ Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. That's what he says here. And this is a truth of paramount importance to you and me. This is a truth that everybody needs to know, but it's a truth that everybody wants to avoid. Okay? God, Jesus Christ, is going to judge. Hear me. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to judge everyone. 
You, you understand that? He, you, you have to understand that Christ at some point in history is going to judge everyone. You see, in this sentence right here is our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is summed up in this one little statement right here. Because the greatest problem you and I will ever face is in fact one day, regardless of the life that you live here, one day you will stand and face a holy God and he will judge you. He absolutely will judge you. And the problem is, is we are all, every one of us born into sin, we are all by our nature sinners. We are in constant rebellion to God. We are his enemies. That's the basic fact that we must come to terms with. If you ever hope to escape, if you ever, ha- ever plan, want to have a hope, that's the terms you have to come, come, that's what you have to come to terms with. And to make things worse, we can't fix it. We can't change ourselves enough to escape our sin nature. We can't do enough good things to take away the stain of our sin. We are helpless and hopeless and we have an appointment to stand before God to be judged. That is the truth everybody must come to terms with. That's the truth that we have to come to terms with before you can actually understand and receive the good news. The good news begins with the fact that there is bad news on the horizon for us all. And understand this, understand this, that without understanding this bad news, without understanding that there will be judgment and without understanding that there will be a punishment for our sins, there is no salvation. There is no salvation if you don't understand this because you, because you have to understand the bad news before you can receive the good news. You see, why in the world would you invite Jesus into your heart? Why would you turn to him and trust in him? Why would you declare him to be the Lord and Savior of your life if there's no bad news? Why would you commit to follow him and be devoted to him and to sacrifice for him and to live and pick up your cross daily and die to self if the, good, if the bad news isn't true? The truth is you wouldn't. I mean, you might say words like Jesus come into my heart, but you're not actually going to authentically put your absolute trust in Christ. You're not going to make him the Lord or the boss of your life. You're not going to seek to walk in complete obedience to him unless you understand the bad news that leads to the good news. And the bad news is hell is real. The bad news is sin is real and it separates us from God. The bad news is God will judge sin and he will punish the unrighteous. But the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And Paul says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the first thing you have to understand. Jesus will absolutely judge the world. Now, the second thing in this text that Paul points out, um, besides the coming judgment, is the appearing of Christ and his kingdom. Make no mistake, Jesus is coming back. Jesus come back to the earth. The reality is that, 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 that Jesus is promised to come back and he always keeps his promises. This is what we hope for. We are hoping for the day that Christ returns, raises the dead to life, judges sin, and restores all things back the way God originally designed. In fact, uh, Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Jesus is absolutely coming back. And all of history is pointing toward a time when God will complete his plan of redemption. This is a fundamental thing that we need to believe as Christians. We are... We, we as Christians can disagree on the manner and timing in which Christ is coming back. And we can argue over all the various nuances of the various end times perspectives. But our belief that unites us all, especially those who are of an orthodox Christian faith, is the fact that Jesus, without question, it will return one day in victory. Now, I point these things out because, because Paul, when you listen to what he's saying, there's a point that he's making. In fact, I want, I want you to hear this as I read this text again, okay? Keep these things in mind as we, that we just talked about. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by, the appearing, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Can, can you hear the urgency there, okay? He's saying in light of the fact that one day Christ will return and God is going to judge everyone, I order you with all authority that I can muster that your job is to preach the word. Preach the word. 
Now, now, what is the word? Well, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 16, he said, all scripture, all scripture is the word. Now, now understand the implications here. He's saying that we need to preach all scripture, every part of the, of, of the, of, of the word of God. We need, to, we need to proclaim all of it. He said to Timothy, you need to preach the word. Christ will come back and he's going to be the judge of the world. And, and people need to hear the truth. Now notice what he's not saying here. He is not saying preach that, that people, the things that people want to hear. He isn't saying that you need to preach the things that make people feel better about themselves. He isn't saying that, you're, that you need to preach your opinion or your personal philosophy. He isn't saying that you need to preach what satisfies itching ears. He is saying you need to preach the word, the truth, the very word of God. And then he gets really specific. And he says, be ready in season and out of season. Now, this is kind of a weird expression to us. But what it literally means is that you need to preach the word when it's convenient and even when it's not convenient. No matter what time of day, no matter what time of the night... No matter what's going on around you, no matter how hard things are, no matter what circumstances surround you, you need to be ready to continually preach the word of God and reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Let's take a closer look at what he's saying here. He's telling Timothy to do three things. He's saying, reprove. Okay, reprove someone. Okay, that's to reprove someone who's following a false teaching. It's to correct someone who's in error. They don't even realize that they're in error. Okay. And then he says to rebuke, which means to rebuke someone who is actually engaged in teaching false teaching. Okay? That that's, that's what that means. Is you need to actually correct the person who's actually teaching an error. And then he says to exhort and encourage people into true doctrine. Okay? This is, this is what, what he is to do. And he's to do all of this patiently teaching them the truth. He is to consistently teach them the truth. And, and where does the truth come from? It comes from the word of God. It comes from the scriptures, the very breath of God. And that, my friends, is the solution to the problem that our culture faces. That's the solution to a culture that has embraced a subjective truth. That's the solution to a world that embraces a relativistic truth. That is the solution for those people and the only hope for people who will not endure sound teaching, but having engineers will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We must continually preach the word and not just some of the word, but all the word. Not just part of the word, all of the word. Not just the part that makes me feel good and lifts me up. All the word. Even the parts that scare me to death. Even the parts that make me uncomfortable. Even the parts that convict me. Even the parts that make me feel guilty. Even the parts that offend the culture that we live in and refuse to see the truth. The solution is to preach the word of God. We need to preach it authoritatively, consistently, without hesitation or reservation. The proclamation of the word of God combined with the work of the Holy Spirit is what opens the eyes of the blind in this world to a real objective truth. It is through the proclamation of the word of God that the church and the world learns about true doctrine. It's through the preaching of the word that people are encouraged to take that doctrine and turn it into right action into their lives. It's through the preaching of the word that people are called to live godly lives in stark contrast with the rest of the world. It is through the proclamation of the word that God, through the word of God, that the church is exhorted to flee from sin and live self-controlled lives. It's through the preaching and authoritative proclamation of the word that the church fully lives up to its mission to be a pillar of of truth and to lift up the work for the world to see the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The solution to a world that's ensnared in postmodern philosophy is uncompromising, faithful proclamation of the only authoritative source of truth, the infallible, inerrant word of God. That, my friends, is the solution. Now, as we wrap up this series, you need to ask yourself a question. What does this mean to me? I mean, how do I apply that to my life? I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. What does that have to do with me? <laughs> Why are you telling me that I need to be preaching the word? Well, actually, it has everything to do with you. You see, you were called to go out in this world and make disciples. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he said, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And there are people who will say, well, that was just for those, those guys at that time. But actually, there's connected to that is the promise that Jesus says, I will be with you 
always, even to the end of the age. And it's so funny because Christians will say, oh, that part applies to me, but the other part doesn't. No, it all applies to you, okay? We are all commanded to go out and make uh, disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Each one of you is called to go out in the world and share the hope of Christ with somebody else and help them begin to follow him by discipling them, you know, and teaching them what you have learned. God didn't save you, so you can just come here to church, you know, and you can sit here and listen to lectures and motivational speeches, you know, every week and go, okay, that felt good. I'm off and running. God saved you so you can go and get trained up and go out into the world and help others to get saved. Remember, when Paul says the purpose of everything the church does isn't, I mean, the church uh, does is, is what? It is so that, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, so they may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The purpose of what we do is to open the eyes of the world. The purpose of what we do is to be a pillar of truth. The purpose of, of, of the church is to express continually and authoritatively the, tr- the, the truth of God. That's what we are to do as a church. And guess what? You're the church. You are the church. This building isn't the church. I by myself am not the church. We are all together collectively the church. We all need to be sharing the word of God with the rest of the world. Now, I'm not saying you need to be able to go out and preach a sermon. I'm not saying that you need to be able to take a text and break it down into the Greek and explain the tense of the verb and, and help people understand how that changes the context. I'm not saying that you need to be able to do that, all right? I'm not saying you have to have a library that looks like mine. What I am saying is you still do need to have a working knowledge of the word of God. You need to have more than just a casual understanding of the Bible. You need to have a handle on, on what you believe and why you believe. You need to be able to tell people why they need Jesus. You need to be able to explain to people that the fact that they are sinners, that they are under the penalty of hell and they can't fix it on their own, but God loved them so much that, they, that he sent his son to die for them. And that he rose three days later, proving that he is what he claimed to be, and that he has the power over sin and death, and that if he will repent from their sins and turn to him in faith and trust him in alone, trust in him alone as the Lord, that they can be saved. You need to be able to explain that. You need to be able to explain how a person gets saved, and more than that, you need to be able to explain at least the basic doctrines that lead to life. You need to be able to explain why false doctrines lead to death. Now, you might think this is a really tough and tall order to fill, but it's really not because, because let me give you some good news. The good news is I mentioned in the beginning of this series, in week one, we talked about, you know, um, that, that we've spent the last several years focused on tearing down the barriers that prevent people from coming here and hearing the word of God. Our goal was to create a welcoming, inviting, loving church family that helps new people to become integrated and feel comfortable here and want to come back, okay? And, and I think that we've done a good job with that. I think that we've accomplished that for the most part, and we're gonna continue to work in that area. But as I said, okay, it has come time for this congregation to grow up. It has come time for us to move closer towards spiritual maturity. And, and we're gonna have to work on that together because the next phase of our development is going to be a heavy focus on discipleship and making disciples. The goal is simply to take this congregation right here and turn it into a lean, mean, disciple-making machine. Which means we're going to go out in the world and we're going to share the hope of Christ with other people and then we're going to walk them down the path of becoming a disciple so that they can turn around and do the same thing. And so we're going to talk a lot about this and we're going to teach you and we're going to train you up so you can fulfill your mission for God. We're going to talk about doctrines and apologetics and we're going to talk about how to grow in your knowledge in the word and how to share your faith. And we're going to give you all the tools that you need to do what God is calling you to do. We're going to, to do everything in our power to equip you, to, to, to help you. Okay, You just need to do one thing. You just need to commit to do your part which consists actually of five things. I said one thing, but it's actually five things. See how pastors do that, right? So, all right. Number one, first thing you need to do is you need to commit to, to being a regular, you know, part of the body of Christ. You need to be here on Sunday morning. 
You need to be here. You need to be here. Okay, we come here together to worship. All right, this is where the word of God is proclaimed. This is where you begin your training, you know, to do what God is calling you to do. You need to be here. Now, I understand there are going to be times when, when, when people are sick. I know that there's, there's, there's going to be family emergencies. And sometimes people are just out of town. I understand that. But for the vast majority of the time, you just need to be here. You just need to allow yourself and allow life changes to, to cause you to make, you know, excuses. Kim and I went through that many times. Okay? You need to make a commitment to be here. Number two, you need to commit yourself to reading and studying the Word of God every day. Not just some days. Every day. Every day you need to read it. And then you need to study it, which means you need to actually take a pen, okay, and, and, and a notebook. And as you read the text, you need to write down the things that God's speaking to you and your observations and why words get repeated. And you need to like take the text apart so you can understand it little by little. But you need to do this every day. And, and now you can say, well, you know, I don't know how to study the Bible. Well, guess what? We did a wonderful series called Four Days in the Word. And we learned about a book by Rick Warren called, you know, Rick Warren's Bible Study Methods. And it's not an expensive book. In fact, I'll, if you need me, need me to, I'll help you pick one of those copies up because it's really, really simple and it's helpful. And the Bible study methods are super simple and you'll get a lot out of it. So you just need to make a commitment every day to read and study your Bible. And number three, you need to commit to memorizing scripture. As you read a scripture that speaks to you, a scripture that, like, that resonates with you, you need to commit it to many, write it down. That way it's there when you need it. When someone says, well, why this? And you can go, thus saith the Lord. Number four, you need to commit to prayer every day. I know this seems like really kind of basic, but it is, okay? Because Christians just don't do enough of this. If, if more Christians prayed, you'd see the world change. It's just a simple fact. You need to pray every time, every, every day. You need to take time every day to talk to God and ask him, Lord, help me to be what you want me to be. Help me to do what you want me to do. Help me to grow the way you want me to grow. Help me to glorify you. And number, number five, you need to commit to studying our statement of faith. In fact, you should have received a copy of that today as you, as you came in. Um, and, and what you just need to do is you need to read it. You need to read through it, and you need to read it one doctrine at a time, looking at, at, at each one of the articles at a time. And then not just that, then, then go back and look up the scripture references that are cited that, that, that support these uh, statements so that you understand what we're saying and why we say what we believe. This is absolutely will help you to wrap your head around what we believe. Our statement of faith is actually based on the Southern Baptist Convention's statement of faith, and it's a pretty comprehensive list of basic doctrines, essential doctrines. Now, it's not going to settle the argument between Calvinism and Arminianism, okay? It's just not going to happen. And it's not going to settle the, the, the argument between monergism and synergism. And if you don't know what those two words are, then praise God for that, that you don't have to, have to deal with that, okay? And it's not going to settle the end times debate either, okay? Because there's a lot, of, a lot of arguments about that as well. But what it does do is it walks people through the foundational teachings of the church. And it's a really, really good guide to start with. In fact, before we wrap up, let's just read one, one of these points, the very first one, uh, so you can get an idea of what the statement of faith is all about. In fact, the first article is on Scripture, and it reads, The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is perfect, is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of the Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony of Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Very articulately, clearly defining our perspective on the nature of Scripture. And then it cites several passages of Scripture in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Second um, Timothy, Hebrews, First uh, Peter, and Second Peter. It's this document uh, helps to unpack the things that we believe. So, so it's, an, it's important that you read it. It's important that you study it. And that way you can come back to it on a regular basis. And it will help to inform you know, your theology and help to inform the way that you are able to approach other people. You see this 
You see, what we need you to do is to commit to being here, reading and studying the word, memorizing scripture, praying and studying the statement of faith. And if you will begin to do these things, if you will begin to get plugged in and follow along, you're going to be able to grow and do the things that God's calling you to do. And you're going to be able to fulfill the mission that God has for you, which is to be a pillar of truth in this dark world. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you so much. And uh, we just praise you for your word, your infallible, inerrant word. We live in a world that is just so critical and so cynical of these ideas. And, and Lord, I, I actually, I praise you, Lord, that I had to come to faith the way that I did, that I was a skeptic, that I was an atheist, that I was someone who didn't believe and I had all the reasons not to believe. And Lord, that I just am grateful that you have been able to open my eyes to see the truth of your word. And I just pray, Father, that we would be a church that boldly proclaims it. And not just, not just me, that, that everyone here would, would learn scripture and they'd be able to tell people why they need Jesus and why they're broken and why they're experiencing the things that they're experiencing. That they need to be able to explain to them the hope and the healing that's found only in your son, Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would move our hearts, Lord, to just desire this and to make a commitment to this and that we would walk in this. And so, Lord, I pray for those who need you today, those who are hurting and broken, those who are, are away from you, Lord, those who spiritually have not connected with you yet, those who have, who have believed but they've walked away, that you connect them as well. I pray, Father, that you just be with them and strengthen them. And... Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.